What's up, guys? Welcome to the Humans of MarTech podcast. His name is John Taylor. My name is Phil Gamash. Our mission is to future-proof the humans behind the tech so you can have a successful and happy career in marketing. What's up, everyone? Today, we have the pleasure of sitting down with Justin Norris, Director of Marketing Operations at 360 Learning and the creator and host of RevOps.fm, a new podcast about RevOps, but also marketing ops, MarTech, a bunch of other stuff. Justin, I've followed you on LinkedIn for quite a bit of time now. It was fun being on your podcast, so we're changing roles here a little bit. So for the folks, Justin kicked off his career at CGA Canada as a marketing strategist and later joined a startup in Toronto called ClearFit as their third employee in the first marketing hire where he wore all of the marketing hats. He then joined Percudo, the esteemed marketing operations agency, as their Marketo Solutions architect. And he was later promoted to senior director of solutions architecture at Percudo. He's currently the Director of Marketing Operations at 360 Learning. Like I said, they're an LMS that features collaborative tools. And late last year, Justin also launched the RevOps FM podcast, a weekly masterclass on becoming a better revenue operator. Justin, thanks so much for your time today. Pumped to chat. Excited to be here, guys. It's a dream to sit down with you both. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by our friends at NAC. Launching an email or landing page in your marketing automation platform shouldn't feel like assembling an airplane mid-flight with no instructions, but too often, that's exactly how it feels. NAC is like an instruction set for campaign creation, from establishing brand guardrails and streamlining your approval process to NAC's no-code drag-and-drop editor to help you build emails and landing pages. No more having to stop midway through your campaign to fix something simple. NAC lets you work with your entire team in real time and stops you having to fix things mid-flight. Check them out at NAC.com, that's K-N-A-K, and tell them we sent you. Yeah, well, thanks for joining the show. Look, it, it's impossible to ignore right now AI, so let's just deal with it and talk about it right now. <laughs> One of the things that I think a lot of folks in marketing technology are dealing with is this fear of missing out with AI. Up until early last year, I really didn't actually play with AI too much. Uh, I used it a little bit uh, here and there as I saw things come out on LinkedIn or Reddit and just kind of tinkered. But you know, a year later after the launch of GPT-4, it's a daily part of my consulting practice. I'm using it with my clients. I use it more than Google for finding information. This is an SEO saying this. I think there's a lot of people who are sitting on the sidelines or kind of looking from the outside or feeling a little bit overwhelmed by all this. You go on LinkedIn or social media and it's like prompt guides and prompt engineering and you're like, what, what can I do to make sense of all of this? I saw you publish something really interesting on LinkedIn around marketing use cases for AI. My question here is, do you think people should have a fear of missing out? And what is the kind of the delta between the reality and the expectations of AI as we stand here today. Yeah, I mean, yes, I think people should have a fear of missing out, a fear of falling behind. I think there's also a legitimate fear of, yeah, so just the FO part of the FOMO, uh, a fear of AI and socially, ethically, like there's that dimension. And then there's even just professionally, what does it mean if, you know, all of a sudden all of our emails, all of our LinkedIn posts are written by AI, is mm -hmm. that a good thing? So I think those are discussions that could be had. I'm, I'm a bit like you in the sense that I'm, I'm maybe six months behind you in terms of adoption, I think, and certainly way behind Phil. 
in terms of, you know, adopting it for the, the image generation and all that sort of stuff. I have this weird contradictory impulse of being a technologist who really loves technology. And then I'm also really a technology hipster where if something is the bandwagon, I really don't want to be on that bandwagon. Mm. I'm like, ah, oh, these <laughs> people with their AI. So I, I kind of take a skeptical eye. I've seen enough of a yearly hype cycle to know some things stick around and some things don't. And I think it's very clear that this should, this will stick around. And so when I see something that reaches that point, I then launch into, well, I want to bring order and structure to this because I don't like just sensationalistic things. So a little bit of like a grumpy old man approach yeah. where it's like, all right, if we're going to do AI, going to do it properly and going to, you know, map out the universe, figure it out. And that's what kind of led me to that, that approach that you mentioned of publishing that list of use cases. Cause I, I don't like adding noise to a room. I want to see like, where can I add value? And I think you, you both take this approach with your podcast too, from what I've seen, like you really like to break things apart into their pieces and cover every angle. And so I thought there's a lot of like tools and I've subscribed to newsletters and I'm seeing all these prompts, but no one's really looking at it from the business point of view saying, here's all the things we need to do. Where can AI help? So here's where I can add value. And I have the sort of tenacity and stamina to like literally go through and, and map that out. And that's what I did. And I've gotten some good feedback on that. So I hope that's helpful. And then based on that, you know, I've started to play around and try to incorporate that into my practice as a marketer and a marketing ops professional. Very cool. Yeah. I remember seeing that resource and uh, I think you have 36 in, in, in on your list there and, and maybe you've added a, a few over time, but yeah, one that jumped out to me that I'm particularly excited about seeing more adoption of is this next best action kind of idea, like recommendations and also the audience selection or propensity modeling idea, you should add a potentially iterable or there's a lot of other tools in there, uh, OptiMove as well to, to that list of tools that are, are playing around with next best action. The tooling is great in theory, but it's the frameworks that's hard, right? Telling a team that's using rule-based automation to now start sending emails based on propensity models and likeliness to buy or likeliness to churn, it's almost like starting from scratch and rethinking how you're approaching all these automated nurture campaigns. How in your mind can we help marketers navigate this change from rule-based automation to propensity models? And, and what do you see in the future of quality assurance, like QA systems? What do those look like when we get closer to start letting AI take the wheel when it comes to email and, and messages? So there's a lot in there to break down. And I know this next best thing I think it's been like the holy grail that people have been chasing for a, a long time. Like for years yeah. we've been hearing about it and we're sort of at a place where it's possible. And I actually have spoken to two different uh, founders in the last few weeks alone who are like working on this problem in a B2B context. And my feedback was the same in both cases, which is it's super interesting, but we have to subordinate the technology to what actually works as a marketer. And I think that it's really easy to think about oh, what could I do and, and, and how could this work and lose sight of the customer context and what would actually make sense to us as consumers? Would it actually work? I think where next best like easily makes a ton of sense is like a B2C use case or maybe like a really low value PLG motion where it's, you know, I use Canva kind of on their free plan and then they like give me a discount and I'll go to the pro plan and then I'll go back. You're like, so perfect for that. They can probably tell mm -hmm. when I'm on the edge. Uh, or if I'm going to buy a pair of socks, you know, they're going to discount ladder me. And we've talked a bit about that in an earlier discussion, Phil. But when we think about a $50,000, I don't know, ABM platform, or if I think about 
the product that I'm uh, working on day to day, which is a learning management system, it's complicated. People have existing platforms. They're in contracts. There's decision committees. There's multiple people. So it's not like we can just, oh, send Susie in HR an email and it's going to tip her over the line and you know she's going to sign the doc you signed today. I think there is an interesting discussion to be had where if we can identify, if I think about the sales cycles that I've been in where I'm comparing different products, there are certainly moments where if somebody could hey, just tell me a bit more about this feature because I'm hesitant here. Or tell me a bit more about this particular use case because I don't actually think you're strong and maybe you are. So maybe it's where we tie in the gong calls or we tie in you know, di the digital body language, the things that they're doing on the website, the things that they seem to be poking around in. But I think it has to get really good at that. If it's just, we detect that like this ebook seems to work well you know, across... 10,000 people. I don't know if it's actually going to, I think the propensity part is different because, you know, we've been doing like predictive scoring for eight, nine years. I think that's pretty well established. And, you know, in terms of fit, in terms of behavior at that level, from the QA point of view, like it's really hard. I, I shared something like almost as a joke the other day, but an outbound email that I'd gotten that seemed pretty clearly AI generated to me because it was like, Hey, we're looking to reach out to people at Mississauga, and I hope I didn't disturb your run around Lake Aquitaine, which is like a trail of evidently near Mississauga, which is like three hours from where I live. So it's like <laughs> hyper-specific, hyper-precise, hyper-inaccurate. Okay, this is what the future of AI will look like without QA. So mm. to your point, I think right now there needs to be a human in the loop. It's too much of a brand risk to not have that. How do we thread that needle? How do we do that at scale? I don't know, but I think I currently would be judicious in approaching it with anything that could be really evidently wrong or create that sort of negative brand impression. I, I yeah. kind of have a follow-up question, a little bit off the script. But something I'm seeing in my network is more and more people coming out and talking about like the pain, the emotional pain of this forced adoption, right? AI is in such this hype cycle where everyone is like thinking, back to my earlier question, the fear of missing out. But what you highlighted there is like, these systems, especially in my own experience of using them daily, is they are powerful, but they don't always hit the mark. In fact, sometimes if you're relying on them too heavily, it actually diminishes the human element so much that it becomes plainly obvious of what's going on. So in terms of the emotion of a technology, I think this is unique in the space, and maybe you agree or disagree, but this sense of forced adoption, like everybody's got to use this or I'm going to be left behind, versus the actual reality of bringing this technology in. I, I actually see a lot of wisdom in the approach that you outlined earlier of this kind of concentrated, slow rollout. What are your advice for listeners who are thinking through this themselves and trying to find the right balance of, you know, being early in a curve that seems to be moving quickly versus actually getting results out of these tools? Yeah, that's such a good question because I think there is a big delta between what it can actually deliver and what people are talking about. In the list of use cases that I put together, I tried to capture that with a, a feasibility score and then an impact score. So there's some mm -hmm. things that are highly feasible today. Like you can write your LinkedIn posts with AI. Mm -hmm. I don't think that you should. I don't think that's what people want to hear. But then in another case, like you can create images with AI today. And, mm -hmm. and, you, and I think that you can and you should because you can produce some amazing work. And so... What I'm doing, at least, is evaluating it all, looking for where I really could use some help. One of the things that we'll, we'll talk about, but you know, processing 
unstructured text at scale. Like that's really boring to do mm -hmm. as a human. So where you actually feel like, oh, this could actually help me. I like that. Or where I'm seeing opportunities. Like I've done more with AI imagery because uh, of the work that you guys do, where I'm like, wow, there's some really cool things that are possible with this. It's way better than going to Shutterstock. Sorry, Shutterstock. But mm -hmm. you know, so I'm going to do that because it's to my benefit versus like, all right, everybody, like take your medicine, do, let's do AI because we got to. So I'm just kind of letting that, that need drive it organically. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I want to pull on that thread about converting unstructured data into different systems. You made a recent post about using different AI tools to pull out qualitative insights from your customer calls. Uh, I think Gong's a good example of recorded calls, but there's, there's a lot of different tools that do similar things out there. But I thought it was a very interesting use case. You, you call out right away that quantitative insights have been the focus for marketers for, you know, like decade plus and definitely guilty of over-indexing on quantitative myself. But you gave this great breakdown of how AI could be used to pull out qualitative insights at scale. As a content creator, I often wonder about the future of AI and creativity. And do you think that these AI applications accelerate, enhance, or even better humanized content that comes from humans? I'm thinking about this a lot right now, and it's hard not to. I think if we start from the place that the thing that makes creative work excellent is that, are those insights, is that, you know, root insight. And I do think that is a uniquely human thing to perceive. We, we haven't gone too far. It, somehow there was that whole debate about is AI sentient? Does it have rights? That all, seems to have died down, thankfully. <laughs> And, I, and yeah. I am of the mind that there is something unique and special about human consciousness that doesn't, is never going to exist in a machine generated neural network. So where I think about AI is it's, it's like a paintbrush, except if you could give the paintbrush verbal instructions and it would interpret them and do the painting for you. And so mm -hmm. where does that leave us? I think it can certainly accelerate and automate and make scalable human behaviors that are tedious and manual and repetitive. So instead of me going through each gong call and like looking it up and okay and putting it in a spreadsheet and doing it again and again ai is going to scale that out so that's super useful scaling like looking over a big corpus of text that would take me time on its own i could even analyze those insights and summarize them i still think there's work to do for me as a marketer or as a creator to like process that and and come to conclusions and i had on my show one of my old bosses mitch solway who is really more of a, he's got a lot of skills, but really messaging and, and strategy is like his thing. And he talks about how he arrives at a message through interviewing customers. And there's this magic and like spark and, and like fire in his eyes when he talks about it and how he forges <laughs> connections. And it's almost intuitive or subconscious, however you want to think about it. I don't think an AI is going to replace that, but it can scale a lot of the work that goes into that. And then it could, can be a tool and I don't know why I, I feel differently about imagery and about writing. Like I feel a, a real resistance, not like the summarized writing, like summarizing something, but I never want AI to write my, my LinkedIn posts. I never, I want that to be me. Why do mm -hmm. I feel that way? And why do I feel okay using it as a tool to create images? I haven't fully squared that in my head, but somehow I do feel that they're different. I don't know if you guys think that too. Yeah, I agree. I think it's capability right now. Like you can tell when people are using ChatGPT to comment on your posts, if you use it enough, you can spot the things that just repeat themselves. Like in conclusion, yeah. in summary, like I do believe there's just like a bunch of shit that's just, you didn't write that. There's robotics in mm -hmm. the word choices there and it's there's lacking human 
I don't know. The, the way I like to write posts is when we do a launch for this episode, I try to think of how would I message my friends or my family about this episode? And I literally write down my posts on my phone and I'll message that out. And I want it to sound authentic. And so, yeah, in the early days of ChatGPT, like I played around with it, help me write this post based on this summary. And it's garbage. I just <laughs> don't like the output at all. I don't think the capabilities there. I'm sure maybe JT, you can touch on the custom stuff you're building and yeah. like how you can tweak some of your prompts and, you know, you can eventually get to something better. But I, I agree, Justin, I think. The image is just better. And I, I think that Dali is, is still quite a bit away from mid-journey. We're talking a lot about comparing those two tools. But yeah, there's just something special about being able to prompt mid-journey and see the output and just be inspired and engaged by the image. And yeah, I think capability on imagery is just like far ahead of writing LinkedIn posts anyways. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come in with a little bit of a different angle. I I will share the discomfort I have around it, but I think I actually somewhat have that discomfort sometimes with the imagery. And I have to say this as somebody who uses Midjourney extensively. Phil's hooked me to it. He's got me paying way too much money for Midjourney every month to generate images as stress relief sometimes even. But I think sometimes it comes back to the heart of AI itself as it's the inputs. And so what I've played with, okay, I have an unfinished novel like every other writer in the world. And so I prompted it with a ton of my writing. And what freaks me out is that I use transcription, voice transcription, and say, now write me a section. It's actually pretty good. So I think that the inputs have a lot to do with what you get as an output. So if you're putting in boilerplate prompts, you're going to get GPT boilerplate out of it. And that we can spot a mile away. But I don't think it's very long until the default styles. And I think that's what Phil's saying about mid-journey versus Dolly is like, the default style of Midjourney is beautiful. Like it is an artist quality content. But when we see GPT writing, it still reads like G GPT boilerplate. And, you know, kind of dovetails me into this question I have and around the gong process that you had. As I was reading through and listening to your last response, I was like, all software, including AI, is derivative of spreadsheets. So I see this like spreadsheet process of going through these gong calls and analyzing sentiment and telling the machine, this is what I think this means, you know, words like I hate. And you made a really good post on LinkedIn about this, how to leverage insights and pull these out of the qualitative conversations. Maybe you can talk a little bit about this process, like from your perspective of how to input, tune, manage these AI processes to actually deliver real value to organizations. Yeah, it's something I'm actively working on, like automating. So on a one-by-one -one level, like you can take a, a transcript and paste it in a chat GPT or portions of it and ask it for something, but that's not super valuable beyond just reading it. What I was working on, the problem I was trying to solve when I wrote the post that you're mentioning was we were doing Outbound and, and I was experimenting with writing some emails. And with Outbound, it's all about breaking through, right? Like when you, an email shows up in your inbox, there's an immediate relevancy gate that your mind applies. Can I delete this? Because I'm busy and I want to delete it. I want to make this go away so I can move mm -hmm. on. Or do I have to worry about this? Or should I think about it? And if it's, you know, outbound is like, I'm going to shoot my shot. And if by some miracle I'm relevant enough, I might just pass through that gate and get a second of your attention and maybe a second more and a second more. In order to do that, you have to know their pains. You know, follow Josh Braun. He's a big cold outbound, cold calling sales email thought leader. 
And he writes a lot about just really knowing your customer there. So I was looking through Gong, looking at pains, looking for their language. What are the things where they're talking about? Oh, I hate this. This is such a drag, or this is the worst, or the things if we were speaking to other uh, marketers and marketing ops pros, like we could just know those things through our own experience. So it was super useful for that. Now to operationalize that, I was just playing with this uh, last week. I've got it to a place with Zapier, which is just the workflow tool that I have, where I can you know, create a tracker in Gong for the thing that you care about, whether that's how did you hear about us information, whether that is pains, like description of your customer's pains or the competitors, whatever. Save that as a search based on that tracker. And so you can use that as a trigger for Zap. That's built in so far. The next part, which isn't built in, is you need to go and retrieve that transcript. So for that, you can use like an API or a webhook rather in Zapier to go and ping the Gong transcript API and it will return that transcript to you. So I am here in, in the journey. That's like as far as I got. The next step is to actually feed that transcript into an AI in an automated way with a prompt and, and get back a response that summarizes it and then do something with that, whether that's pushing it into a Salesforce field or HubSpot field or pushing it into a spreadsheet to analyze. And I'm actually just blocked literally at the moment by the fact that I don't have access to the subscription credentials to plug in to my Zapier account. So I'm just working on navigating that internally. But the built-in AI by Zapier action seemed a bit rudimentary and I may just may not know how to use it properly yet, but you can certainly, and I've seen it, have a chat GPT discussion within that flow and return mm -hmm. things back. And so that's what I'm, that's what I'm aiming to do. I think it's totally achievable, but I'm still kind of working through that. Very cool. I'm looking forward to the the LinkedIn post when you, you get to finishing that process. And uh, yeah, maybe we can package that up and, and use it for other use cases because I think it, it's super powerful. I think this idea of being able to spot specific things that you know are valuable to you from a messaging standpoint. But yeah, I, I definitely agree with this idea of APIs are, are opening the door on a lot of automated use cases for ChatGPT and, and using tools like Zapier almost bring me to this idea of how can we go to this composable world where we're using Zapier to hook up different tools and including our own unique custom data sets to ChatGPT and instructing it with better information, right? You wrote about this sweets versus best of breed discussion. We talked about this on your podcast too. I like to call it platform versus composable. Being a Marketo guy yourself, I was actually pretty surprised to see that the your conclusion there was that you, you actually favor best of breed tools, but you accurately called out the challenge of integrations with composability and, and best of breed. What's your solution for tackling the age-old problem of endless lines of API integration overload? Yeah. So it's really funny that you say that in a way, and I can see where you're coming from, but I have always considered myself a best of breed guy, like for as long as I've been doing this. But I think the meaning of that has changed. And we talked a little bit about mm -hmm. this before, but where it was like a suite meant that you were going to buy all SAP or all Adobe or all yeah. Salesforce. So you're going to use Salesforce and Pardot instead of Marketo and Salesforce. So best of breed because you're using two tools from two different vendors because you like their functionality. And I think what's changed is just that the ability to break that functionality down into smaller and smaller point solutions and microservices mm -hmm. and have them talk to each other and give the average MarTech team, or let's say the slightly above average MarTech team, the ability to, you know, connect those dots together on their own has increased so greatly. 
The thing that I think about there, there's no perfect MOPS leader or there's no perfect CRO or CMO like considered in the abstract. There's just a perfect person for a specific job in a specific company at a specific time and place. And it's the same way with, with tech. I think there's no perfect tech stack. Everything is about context. Everything is a cost. Everything is about trade-offs. And so you have to consider if you're a company of 10 and you, know, you have a quarter of an FTE working on MarTech, I don't think you're going to go and build a big composable stack because this is yeah. the best. And it wouldn't make sense in that business context. And in other contexts, of course, it, it would. And you've lived that, I know, Phil, from our past discussion. So I think, to me, ops is a game of skillfully managing those trade-offs to achieve an objective. And you have kind of one eye on the present and you have one eye on the future. And I feel that with the rise of easily accessible APIs, the rise of microservices, and most importantly, the rise of workflow automation tools has changed that game and made it easier than ever. So long-winded way to answer your question about APIs, but I, th I think having a centralized place to, to manage all of those connections means you don't necessarily need to have your marketing automation platform be like your workflow source of truth, your CRM mm -hmm. be your workflow source of truth. You can have an independent workflow layer. I have the most experience using Workado. It's my tool of choice for that. But that could actually be your place where you have all your logic about data value updates and who goes where and who does what and all the this and that stuff. And then you have your systems of execution that are sending emails or sending text messages or booking calendar invites or the interfaces where your sales team is working to do their stuff. And I think that, that can be managed um, quite readily with error handling and troubleshooting and without making you go crazy, you know, with a lot of custom development. So I think we're there. And if I was building a stack today, I probably would look at that at least at the first place, you know, depending on the context that I'm in. Yeah, very cool. I think the, the rise of web services and even like this idea of warehouse native MarTech tools where we're relying on activating data that is in our warehouse. Like I think a lot of folks listening to you about the a quarter of a full-time <laughs> data engineer uh -huh. on the team, like that, that was too real of a statement for me from past gigs there. But yeah, one thing with countless integrations that I struggled with was actually like figuring out how we activate the data that lives in the most important places so that we can have it in our marketing tools. This episode is actually brought to you by our friends at Census. Census is a data activation platform. They're used by cool companies like Sonos, Canva, Crocs, Notion, and, and a bunch of other ones. We use them at my current startup. And as a customer, I've experienced the magic of using a reverse CTL tool. They allow me to have this no-code audience hub that's very similar to a lot of marketing automation tools where you can build segmentations of different customers and different data points based on data coming from your data warehouse. And you can then create highly personalized journeys in your marketing automation platform or like your Google ads platform. We're actually running a really cool contest with them right now. If you like the humans of MarTech graphics and you want your very own image, we're doing this monthly raffle with Census for a personalized t-shirt designed by us. So you can enter to win at kencensus.com slash humans. But Justin, I'm curious, like what are your thoughts on this shift of this warehouse native centric approach to MarTech? where, I don't know if you remember, like it, CRM was kind of like, all the data needs to live in is the source of truth. I feel like we're definitely migrating to the warehouse being the source of truth, like what lives in Redshift or, or your CRM. What are your thoughts there? I'm already on that website filling out that raffle application. <laughs> Get my t-shirt. I'm not even listening. Anymore. Just joking. Same answer, obviously, about context and things apply. I think one of the things that shaped my thinking about this, and I haven't really 
seen this happen in uh, reality yet, but there's a concept called uh, a data mesh, which was popularized by an engineer, data engineer named Zamek Dagani. And the idea there was that any kind of centralized process can become very fragile, very rigid and, and breakable and has a tendency to not scale. And the things that the concept of a data mesh maximizes for is having local data stewardship and kind of universal or ubiquitous data consumption and data availability. So the notion there being that like, all right, if you try to like, like a centralized warehouse, I think is a, is a good step until you reach a certain size. And then at that point you have, if you think about Spotify, this was the example in the article I read, you know, you have lots of different sources of data at Spotify. You have like artists and playlists, and then you have stuff around activity, like how people are engaging with those things and users' preferences. So rather than trying to store all that in one place, like you have the teams that are working on those topics, owning their data and making that data available for consumption via an API mm -hmm. to the rest of the company. So in a sense, mm -hmm. you have multiple sources of truth, but those sources of truth are uh, domain specific and, and kind of bounded. And hopefully I'm not mangling Zamak's uh, concept here, but this is like my understanding of it. And that really spoke to me because what it means is that as a data consumer, you have access to everything via an API that's like really standardized. And what it means is that as a, a data governor or a data steward, the people that are managing that data are the people that are the closest to it. Now this presumes an organization of a size and scale where you have kind of distributed data resources and you have that expertise in different places. So you're not going to get there yeah. at like 500 or a thousand people. And for that, probably a centralized data space or data warehouse works. But what I find is that even at a smaller scale, you run into challenges where your, your data warehouse administrator doesn't necessarily understand the nuances of the data that they're ingesting. And so there mm -hmm. has to at least be a really strong partnership between kind of a data steward on the functional side, so like within marketing or within sales, probably in the ops team, working with them on like schema structure. How do we make that data accessible and available? Because otherwise you just, you get, it doesn't live up to its, its promise. At least that's what I've seen. And I think in Phil, you've gone further along this composable warehouse first journeys. You've probably seen more of those, of those pitfalls, but I've lived those things as well. I, I kind of have a follow-up question and it's been building in my brain for a little bit. So this is always a dangerous moment on the podcast when I have a question <laughs> like this. Phil's laughing and nervously already. So what's he going to say? Are we going to cut this? So Justin, like from, from my own perspective, I've been out of marketing operations for a little bit, but I'm still very much in marketing technology. Some of the things that you guys are talking about here, like the connection between APIs, the different tools that you can use to connect data points. Marketing technology is kind of this bridge between the really technical aspects of what we could do in marketing from, you know, programming, data connections, web interactions, and so on, but also like this data analytics component. I'm just curious in, in your perspective, like five, 10 years from now, people listening to this cast who are, you know, in school or in the beginning of their career. What type of skill set do you think is going to be the standard operating procedure for like top tier marketing technologists or top tier marketing operations professionals? Like, should folks be learning Python, JavaScript? Should they be using data analytics? Like, what's your read on the current trends? That is a dangerous question. <laughs> I, 
I increasingly, so if we look back to the beginning, I was like a first principles guy, as you can probably see the, the pattern by now, but I like to think about it from the beginning. And what was marketing ops? It was like demand gen marketers with tools who sort of knew how to use them. And then they're like, oh, I like the system stuff. It's like more fun than posting ads on Google. So I'm going to just do that more. And that was kind of my journey. This is, this is actually really cool. Like I'm just keep doing it. And, and then it all kind of got wrapped up together. And I think then where it's taken us is to a definition of marketing ops that's still very tech-centric, where tech is almost synonymous. Like we have MarTech, marketing ops. What's the difference? It's very different in sales ops. Like even in my company, we have a sales ops team and then we have a sales force team. Then they were Salesforce reports into sales ops, but they are distinct. And I think what we'll see increasingly, and my friend, Paul Wilson, who I know you folks know, he's been on the show. He predicted this to me a few years ago, and I think he's absolutely right, that we're going to increasingly see like a, a split between marketing ops as a business oriented function that like runs the business. And then I think also manages performance management, some aspects of strategy, like really managing like the business of marketing from an operational point of view. We'll see a split between that and a split between systems and whether systems lives still within marketing, like it's kind of functionalized and distributed or whether it's one monolithic business systems with different things. I don't know if that matters as much, but I think the insight is that it's hard to do both. It's really hard to be like, I'm the product manager of this instance and taking features and doing this. And I'm doing like all of the daily troubleshooting and run work. And I need to think about like KPIs and um, challenging my team on performance and helping shift direct the things that I think are really good uh, ops people should do is really hard to do everything. So I think obviously within smaller companies, you will, because that's the nature of being in a small company. And if you like that, you will <laughs> yeah. work in a small company and you'll do that. But I think the, the definition of the skill sets, I think they'll start being multiple paths. Are you going to be like a product manager of a set of platforms? Are you going to be a developer? Are you going to be more in like performance management ops? And, and so people will be able to choose those paths and maybe float between them. But the idea that a, that marketing ops is just synonymous with tech. I think that's really dying. And I think so many people talking about that more and more. And then the, just that one person can do them all. Uh, I think that will also start to fade away. Yeah, I think the startup folks listening right now are just like, what, how, like, how can you split those things in, in, in the small team that we have, but haven't had a stint at, at a bigger company? And I know when, when you were at Percuto, you you got a taste of working with with enterprise as well and it's it's easy to see how convoluted a lot of the system stuff can get and uh, yeah i think paul is is right on the money there on on the future split jt i know you want to get into some fun topics here there was a really fun uh, sci-fi yeah. star trek post yeah, yeah, that well, justin posted yeah so i'm i was introduced to star trek i didn't have a choice about being a trekkie so <laughs> forgive me at the outset it was indoctrinated in me but you kind of made a fun post about this right star trek predicting so many technological leaps and i think star trek if you've watched it is obviously it's got everything right from the the ai on board and yeah just so much from there i think that in most science fiction however we don't get to see these transitional moments right like we'd never get to see them go from having you know holograms or the ability to transport instantly what are the effects on people the normalization of the technology it's always oh this is so normal obviously we're back to this ai question we can't escape ourselves from in this moment but how do you think we prepare ourselves for these kind of quantum leaps that we we see and can forecast i think regardless of ai's 
ability to execute today, I think it's probably pretty fair to assume that it's going to be a game changer. In the long term, we're going to have AI integrated into our future tech stacks. So what are you thinking that folks should be doing to prepare themselves? Kind of a follow-on to my last question as well. It's funny you mentioned about those transitional moments because I haven't watched all the Star Trek series, but I am like, I think the next generation was like my intro point to the to Star Trek. And then I watched Discovery and then I watched Deep Space Nine, which I really loved. And then Deep Space Nine ended and I sort of felt a vacuum of what am I going to do? And I'd never watched the original series and I kind of started. And I just, I haven't actually been able to fully get into it yet. But just the other day I started watching Enterprise, which I haven't seen before. And it's funny because it sort of covers this transitional moment. Like it's about the first enterprise, like where, you know, I think they're like, we're going to go at like warp 4.5 or something. And that was like a big thing for the, the yeah. non-Trekkies in the audience, you know, later ships are like at warp nine. So this is like a very early thing. And, you know, one of the first real interstellar spaceships for that society. And, and so it was kind of cool seeing, you know, them grapple with coming out of their infancy as a star faring civilization and moving into, you know, taking a, a seat at the grown up table with all of the other, you know, cultures that are out there, the Vulcans and the Klingons. And so maybe we're, I mean, we're, that is a much more monumental kind of shift than what we're going through even with AI, but there could be something similar. I think we're probably grossly unprepared as a society and will, you know, continue to be. And I think as individuals, we can probably prepare ourselves, but ultimately, you know, all of the technology is a reflection of the, the people who use it and collectively the society who use it. And we can see that with all the, the tech that we have that can do good, that can do harm to people, to places. Um, so I, I suppose this is a kind of dour and pessimistic answer to your question, <laughs> John, but I, I sort of think, you know, as an individual, I guess I want in the, I, I did an episode on AI, just a solo episode, and, and it kind of ended it with this like comparison of how this technology is used in Star Trek and how it's used in WALL-E, like in Star Trek where, you know, it's a tool, it enables people, you know, they're like, computer, give me a diagram. So they're using the AI, but there's, so the human is very much like just solving the problem. The computer is just taking them to the next level as a thinker. Mm -hmm. And I really love that. And then there's WALL-E where you know, you're like an adult baby sitting in your floating hover chair and the AI is just <laughs> keeping you in this state of, you know, inactivity and mindlessness. And I can see us getting, I, that's what worries me a little bit about mm -hmm. some of the GPT, write me a blog post about XYZ and create all the socials and just do all my work for me that we stop thinking we're going to, we're going to lose that. So I suppose there's a certain vigilance that I personally am maintaining that I hope other people maintain about, let's not get lazy. And I think market forces will, to a certain extent, be self-correcting there because I don't think those things will work very well if they start working well. If, if you can finish your novel with AI, that actually kind of scares me, to be honest. Yeah. Well, and just from my own experience, it's not finishing the novel for me, but prompting me through the most difficult bits, the, the parts that I got stuck on. You know, it just jumped in my mind as you're speaking. The idea, the paradox that we have in our society for almost all technology is our ability to use technology is almost completely abstract from our ability to understand it. And I think mm -hmm. like this, you could, don't have to be a decent writer or understand the concept of storytelling to go to GPT, follow some influencer's prompt and create. Phil and I have been joking about this prompt I found on LinkedIn and it's I don't know. It reads like a lot of LinkedIn posts. It reads pretty decent. It's still GPT boilerplate, but I think that ultimately just to, to wrap it up, like it's up to us, right? Human beings are getting to choose how we adopt this technology. 
and put this out into market. And I think individuals like us actually have a role to play in how do we apply this technology and move it forward. And evangelizing the, I mean, that's to the extent that, you know, anyone is listening to me, that's what I'm trying to do as well. Here's how I think it's a good way to use it. Here's, here's what I do. Mm-hmm. I love the Star Trek Wally comparison. The, admittedly, not a, a big Trekkie myself. I think that it's just overwhelming, like all the ways you can get into it and start watching it. And I, I tried, but got stuck. But I am a, a huge Wally fan. It is, it's one of my all time favorite movies. And yeah, I think about it a lot for AI and who's who's going to be our, our future Wally to, to save future lazy generations from being able to like problem solve and, and not dehumanize uh, a, a lot of like our problems there. But I want to stick to the, the TV show theme for a second, Justin. Your post that got a good laugh for me was your suggestion to have a Shark Tank kind of competition when you are shopping for MarTech tools. I think a lot of the folks listening have gone down that road of, all right, we need a new reverse CTL tool or we need a new market automation platform, go on websites, you fill out demo forms. And then for the next month or two, like you're just chatting with sales folks and jumping on different demo calls and you're comparing notes with different tools and different tools are using different words to really mean the same thing and different features. But it would be hilarious to see, like you suggested, vendors argue in front of each other and how drastically similar some of the pitches would be. It almost made me think of like this RFP process where in government in Canada, and I think it's like that in states too, instead of going out to vendors and saying, hey, I'm kind of interested in this tool, give me a demo of it. Uh, the RFP process is I have a need for this uh, solution to this problem. And then you just put out the RFP and then vendors bid on maybe they do demos and stuff like that. So it would be cool to kind of flip that. But one thing I thought about that I wanted to ask you is Juan Mendoza, a friend of the show, built something along those lines a little bit last year with the TMW 100. I had the pleasure of being a judge and and the vendor applicants had to fill out a pretty rigorous set of questions. And it almost felt kind of like a, a sales pitch as a judge, like reading through it and stuff like that. So maybe you should collab with, with Juan next year and turn TMW 100 into a Shark Tank pitch fest. <laughs> That's really cool. It, it amused me the extent to which people responded to that post. It was like, oh, we actually did this. And some people were like, it worked. Some people were like, it didn't. And even <laughs> that salespeople were actually into it too. Because mm. I think, I mean, I haven't gone as deeply down the, the sales process rabbit hole, but I think as a buyer and then to an extent as, uh, as an operator that you know interacts with our sales team, I think there's just so much work that needs to be done around the sales process. Like not just optimizing it within the existing framework, but totally new frameworks, totally disruptive paradigms, because it it doesn't work well. It wastes a lot of salesperson time. It wastes a lot of buyer time. And there's so little trust. I don't trust any vendors anymore. I don't trust anything that they tell me, not because they're bad people or because they lie, but because a sales engineer can um, spin anything. Like I have done the job of like, these are all my use cases. This is exactly what I want. Tell me if you have it, give me links to your documentation. And yet you buy the product and you end up there and you're like, oh, like it isn't what I, th I thought it was. So I think ultimately yeah. that's where PLG comes in. That's where pilots, where trials, like you want to get your hands on it. I want to see what it can do. The, the Shark Tank thing would be another way potentially around that. And at least that would cut down the back and forth time. And, you know, they're trying to plant landmines and create fear, uncertainty, doubt about each other. So if, you know, 
demand bases, well, six cents can't do X, Y, Z, then at least the six cents person is there. And it's actually, you know, you can almost <laughs> like an adversarial court process where they could hash it out and maybe get to truth a little bit more quickly. I'd be totally open to that, but no, as a buyer, it, it sucks. It just sucks yeah. your time, sucks the life out of you. Something needs to change. I don't know what the right answer is though. <laughs> yeah. I love that idea. The, you know, just as a tag along to that, like this idea of clarifying what the category actually is, like sometimes you go into these MarTech you know, conversations like, what the heck am I even buying? Everybody <laughs> says something totally different. Um, you know, speaking of hands-on experience, one thing I saw, uh, you joined a live mops huddle on marketing ops horror stories. And as tempted as I am to turn the humans of MarTech into a weekly confessional with folks, you know, I think that a lot of us have made mistakes, grievous errors, sending to the entire databases, not naming names, John. But I want to ask your advice for people trying to recover from a mistake. I think this is something a common in mops i think it's common in marketing to make an error whether it's email is really the typical one because you can't take back an email that you send but i think there's two parts to this question one part is how do you stop fear from paralyzing you from doing cool things and second of all how do you recover from a mistake on the fear question i think part of it is just i don't know part of it is just like going with the flow like i when i was on the agency side I would sort of tell new consultants, like, listen, I've made bigger mistakes than anybody and I'm here and it's fine. And I think if you have enough talent and you get enough wins, then you earn some credits in the bank that cover your mistakes and just normalizing those mistakes, meaning that they're okay. There's a big difference between errors out of carelessness, errors out of lack of foresight, errors out of just simple lack of like caring of, you know, of giving a hoot about it. And I think those are damning errors. And then there's errors like, we didn't know what we didn't know. It was my first time, mm -hmm. et cetera. And so having a culture and an environment that normalizes that, that's, yeah, you're going to, I, at Procuto actually, it was one of the very first things, I think the first day I started, the COO, Yousef, said to me, you know, you're going to take too much time if you just try to sweat over the perfect architectures. Take an hour, think about it, and then decide and move on. It's okay, that's the culture that we're in. That's perfect. That's the perfect environment. And you will make some mistakes, but you have to know that's going to, to happen. So making that rule for yourself, having a culture like that, if you're in a culture where it's like no mistakes allowed, and I was just reading about this in, in a book the other day, well, then you're going to get people that don't take any risks and that are very cautious. Mm -hmm. And you're going to wonder where's innovation in my company? Mm -hmm. Well, it's because you said, I want no mistakes. You can't have one without the other. So I like to work at places where there's that healthy balance of where innovation and some level of mistakes are okay. Now, when they do happen, the most important thing, I think this is universal, is just to take responsibility because, you know, nobody, there's something very disarming about saying, I messed up. It's my fault. Here's what mm -hmm. happens. Here's what happened. Here's what I'm going to do about it. And I will keep you up to date. And people are like, oh, okay. It's almost, almost not only just brings your credibility up back up to zero, but even sometimes a little bit higher because people can see that you're really taking responsibility. And here's why we did it. And, you know, there's just that level of ownership. If it's every week on the same thing, <laughs> we screw up again. I'm here to tell you, okay, that's not good. But every now and then or on a new thing, that's normal and that's fine. So avoid the urge to explain it away, to be like, yes, we want to say, but actually, and it doesn't help. And just being like, you know, I try to do that and, and it has served me well.
Yeah, love that answer, Justin. You you kind of talked about this also on your. You, you talked about the field blocking moves that that you had on the the RGA podcast probably a couple of years ago. An oldie, uh, but but a good. Forgotten goodie. about that one. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. But one the one thing that I loved about kind of like when you were unpacking, you know, what happened, kind of what you were doing after was your rule for always in the future now having another person doing your QA. And folks listening might just be like, yeah, well, obviously someone's going to, someone else is going to QA the email that I write, but especially in startup, when you're moving fast or even agency, when you've got like four clients kind of on the go, it's so easy to just like QA your own stuff, but you've been in there for multiple hours. You're looking at the same workflow, the same smart rules, the same flow steps. And even as detail oriented as you can be, it's so easy to just miss something that would be super obvious for someone who's coming in with a fresh set of eyes, just got up, is drinking a coffee. But yeah, we would love to, to to hear your take on that. Sorry to bring up all the bad memories. Yeah, I know that one was terrible. That we literally had to build an entirely different software application to reverse all the data changes. And thankfully we could. I think the having a peer do the QA is an ideal and an ideal that's not always achievable, obviously. Like in an agency environment, it was a rule. It worked really well. And QA was actually a great job for more junior consultants that were getting started to come in, to have this structured environment. And you learn so much through QA, you learn so much through troubleshooting, you see how things are done, but you're not responsible for building it. So it's a perfect kind of career and skill progression role. In my team, you know, we try to do that as much as we can, but it's not feasible. I have a team of three and the two people on my team, you know, work in different areas and I'm, I can't always be a bottleneck of going into QA their work. So we have self QA. Yeah. Uh, but at least having the, the responsibility of doing the QA and documenting the QA, which for me means uh, having a set of unit tests that are documented. Here is the expected result. Here's what happens. Here's the test lead. Just having some of that rigor. That's what I really liked about consulting, to be honest, was that there was this feeling of like professionalism and rigor and how you do things. Documentation, QA, discovery. Felt good. Kind of like a, almost like a uniform that you wear. And so trying to bring that in, even at a relatively small scale up, to bring that in as much as we can and, and have that culture of professionalism. So I think you can do that even with a small team. Time flies when you're having fun. We're to our last question. The inevitable last question we ask all of our guests. Justin, you're a podcast host, a speaker, a sci-fi fan, guitar player, owner of three dogs, a homegrown gardening ops manager, which we just invented that term, but I love it. <laughs> How do you find balance between all the things that you're working on? How do you stay happy, success, and well-balanced in your career? What's your approach? It's pretty hard, I would say. Uh, anyone says that you can balance all those things uh, easily is uh, either amazing or I don't believe it. Uh, the way I'm the way I'm thinking about it is that there is a season, you know, for everything. There's a season for career. There's a season to start a family. There's a season to start side projects. There's a season to pursue your passions. Some of those seasons can overlap, obviously, at various times, but you have to know what you're doing. So right now, like last fall, I started. RevOps FM, and you both know what's involved in starting a podcast and trying to make it successful and committing to publishing weekly and promoting it and all of those things. This is a huge thing. So I'm like invested in that. I, I think the key thing is that it, you have to be doing something that interests you and that is providing a channel for uh, something that you like want to express or want to develop or want to grow. So for me, it's I really enjoy doing it. Like I really do. You know, mm -hmm. and obviously you do too, because we wouldn't be doing this otherwise. <laughs> You've been at it for three years. 
but it's awesome to learn. It's awesome to, Hey, like you smart person who knows something that I want to know, come on my show and I just going to ask you questions for an hour and yeah. learn whatever I can from you for free. That's amazing. And to, even if nobody watched, that would be a really cool thing to do. Yeah. So, so I like it. And now there's, but there's limits. So something I recently did was, was bring on like a, a producer on contract, someone who edits the show and I can kind of work with on that. And she reached, actually just reached out to me like a cold email, but her, her email was so spot on. I think you understand me. And then for a long while, I was like, you know, I'm a perfectionist. And I was like, I don't know if I can trust someone else to edit the show, but the first conversation, I'm like, oh, this person actually gets it. She had a background in radio. And so I'm now in the, you know, going, have gone through a few episodes of doing that. She edited your last episode, the episode with you, Phil, that I just posted and it's working out. And yes, not every little thing is exactly like I would do it, but I get some of my weekends back. And I also have time to now do things like if I want to develop YouTube as a channel, or if I want to just post more on LinkedIn to promote my stuff generally, like you, you reach a point where you have to do, bring in help, know what you're going to outsource so that you can do other things. Mm. And so that's the realization for me. It's like, actually it's impossible to do well. So figure out what you're not going to do and then keep yourself happy that way. So that was a step that I took. Awesome advice. Yeah. We'll have to take some of that ourselves i would like to get some of my weekends back but yeah we are outsourcing a bit more this year too so yeah we'll uh, we'll take that advice to green bay appreciate your time justin this is super fun time flew by yeah we'll love to see the future of building revops.fm really excited to have another podcast in the similar kind of field there but uh, yeah really appreciate it man thanks for your time we'll chat again thank you guys so much it was a lot of fun This episode was also brought to you by Iterable. Your customers didn't fall in love with a robot. They fell in love with your brand. Your customer data can be more than generic conversation starters. They can be meaningful relationship starters. Iterable makes it easy to turn your data into joyful interactions. As a customer myself, along with companies like Redfin, Calm, and Box, I've seen how Iterable is leading the way as an AI-powered marketing automation platform. While the old guard is still struggling to update their user interfaces from the mid-2000s, Iterable is way ahead of the game with a drag-and-drop journey builders, A-B testing, and AI features. Iterable keeps you ahead of the game with the latest AI features so your customers continue falling in love with your brand over and over. Check them out at iterable.com and tell them we sent you.